0: This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy.
1: I'm from the...
2: Good morning, Kat. Good morning, Chelsea. Good morning, Radio World. Yes,
0: the date is October 9th, 2019. And with just a week away from the voting registration deadline here in Virginia, we wanted to bring you an episode about voting. So here we are. And I think it's important to start out with a story about our own democratic journey. So back in 1870, remembering... That blacks had barely been freed uh, blacks were able to organize and collect power in order to gain their right to vote so black suffrage was actually happened and passed as the 15th amendment in 1870. well then 32 years later here in virginia good old Virginia, 1902 we implement our new virginia constitution so One day we're gonna really have to do a reconstruction episode, Kat.
2: Oh, it's happening.
0: It's gonna happen. So after reconstruction was over, uh, Virginia decided we're gonna go back to our old ways with maybe a new dressing. And we, (laughs) no, for real though, we, we can't say outright enslave them, but let's see how we can use the law just like we did with enslavement to keep them down. And what they did is they mimicked the constitution from the state of Alabama, and filled virginia policy with discriminatory policies and overnight in 1902 black men votership decreased by 90 percent in 1902 90 percent of black voters disappeared overnight because of the 1902 constitution
2: so how did they do that
0: they uh, you all, so we again, we gotta have this reconstruction episode oh, yeah. because yeah. we talk about black power, especially in the south, and then we talk about white terrorism and the takeover and how the federal government backed out and say, we are not gonna enforce this emancipation anymore. And the Southern states just went rogue. And there's such good history that we need to learn from in here. But most people that I do walking tours with for the broadwalk, I talk about the story all the time down at the Devil's Half Acre that in 1902 is when Virginia wrote into law the discriminatory practices that, that we're still dealing with today. So when Ralph Northam put together his Virginia Commission to look at looking at inequalities, we should be looking at a lot of these laws that were implemented back then and seeing how they've transformed over Jim Crow and what they're showing up as now
2: are we talking things like voter tests and voter ids
0: um yeah so exactly so you have to you remember had to- i went to virginia public schools which means <laughs> i learned nothing about this exactly so in 1902 even though blacks had the right to vote technically they could not discriminate against people by race for voting they said you had to own land said that you had to be educated. You had to be able to read. You had to be able to pay this poll tax. The poll tax. Yeah. Right. And we know from our history and our storytelling that white women in 1920 actually got the right to vote first. It wasn't until decades later in 1965 that the Voting Rights Act was passed thanks to the civil rights movement. And it was no longer legal to have the discriminatory practices within any type of electoral practices. But what we see now is that, oops, voting machines don't work. Oops, we lost that. Oops, you didn't know about the deadline was different in Virginia to register than it is for the nation. Yeah, for the nation, it's actually October 22nd is your last day uh, nationwide to register. But here in Virginia, we said, you know what, we're going to back that up. You gonna think you got time, but you do not. So here we are, 2019, talking about voting.
2: And our guests today are going to talk about why this election in Virginia is so important. But spoiler alert, it could determine the fate of Virginia and what happens for the next 10 years.
0: Absolutely. And the reason that we have our House and Senate race elections on the off year of presidential elections is because they don't want you to come out. The research shows that the higher the turnout rate, the more likely it is for a liberal candidate to win. So making Virginia have elections every single year, making it overwhelming for you to keep up with, making it ugh, rather just easier for you not to have to pay attention to the House and Senate races. So it is intentional that they do not want you to pay attention to the House and the Senate races. But right now, this will determine our fate in Virginia, Cat about abortion, about criminal justice, about energy. We have a real chance to take the majority of the house and the senate and not need our lieutenant governor for a tiebreaker who said that what? <laughs> um, but yeah so i'm really excited about this episode cat we've got three amazing ladies coming in i mean just leaders in their own industries and they're going to talk about the importance of voting different types of voting the history of voting what's happening here in the commonwealth as well as history of voting right here in the city of richmond So here we are, October 9th. Maybe we'll see y'all at the polls next week. Stay tuned for this interview. Okay, welcome. We've got some amazing guests here today, and I'm going to just allow them to introduce themselves as we go around the table.
1: My name is Sally Hudson. I'm an economics professor at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and the Democratic nominee for the 57th district in the House of Delegates there. I think I'm here today because I'm an election reform advocate. I'm real active with One Virginia 2021, which is our statewide anti-gerrymandering campaign. And I founded Fair Vote Virginia, which is Virginia's chapter of the national ranked choice voting movement.
3: Thank you so much for being here, Sally. Good morning, my name is Dr. Kimberly Matthews, and I'm a leadership professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University, this is my fourth year teaching, and I'm here today to talk a little bit about the Richmond Crusade for voters and their history. Thanks so much for being here.
4: Good morning, Tram Wynn, co-executive director of New Virginia Majority. We are a statewide civic engagement and advocacy organization that works primarily with the disenfranchised um, communities, people of color, young people, women, and trying to make sure that we all have a say in the decisions that impact our lives.
0: Great, so we've gathered this table here this morning to discuss voting, and as you all know, we are obsessed with space, place, and time, and so we thought it was gonna be really important to set the history of our own place and space here in the formal capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Matthews, the last few years when I've really been diving into racial narratives, anytime we talked about local people power and the ability to see our faces and local government and representative government, we talk about and hear the Richmond crusade for voters. For a long time, I actually, as a lifelong Richmonder, felt like I was almost neglected This story and information by not knowing and by growing up and being so motivated to want to participate. And after learning about this story and deep diving into the story, it's something I always bring up because I want to feel like I'm part of the history and part of the space and I'm part of the future. So please start anywhere where you feel is is a good place for you because you've been writing about this. You've been participating. And I also think it's really important for people to know that the story of the Richmond Crusade for Voters came from a Richmond Crusade for Voters.
3: Absolutely. And you're not the only one. I didn't know about the organization until about 2014. Mm -hmm. Self and I have lived here all my life as well. So the Richmond Crusade for Voters started in 1956 here in the city. It really started off as uh, the Committee to Save Our Public Schools, which was an interracial group that really believed that education was not a privilege, it was a right. And they decided to band together to go against mass resistance as well as the Stanley Plan, which would have allowed localities to close schools instead of integrate them. So that the Stanley Plan actually passed. And the group disbanded, but there was a few members from that group that decided that they really wanted to address the situation, but through the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And that's how the Richmond Crusade voters started back in 1956. So they realized that education is just a part of it, but it was the catalyst, but voting. Mm -hmm. And they saw what was coming, coming down the pike, which was... These kinds of bills were going to continue to happen because they were against federal law, because the massive resistance was from Brown versus Board of Education. Right. So they decided, OK, we can do this through the ballot box and allow people to vote. And that's what happened. And the, the voter turnout was low among African-Americans. That's how the Stanley Plan actually won. Mm. Um, what was, uh, was Not defeated. So they decided to come together with uh, three founders Dr. William Ferguson Ree, Dr. William Thornton, and businessman Johnny Brooks. Those three came together and decided that they were going to start an organization that would change the face of Richmond to educate as well as register African American voters in the city. And I think that's key, not just to register, because we do a lot of registering even today, but it's to educate voters as well. Mm -hmm. Candidates, what's going to be on the ballot. Um, what people stand for. So that was very important and kind of new at that time as well.
2: And what does that look like when you're educating voters?
3: When you're educating voters, you come together. This is one thing that they did. Was kind of undercover. They would have meetings at people's homes and thought there would be, um, others thought they were just having um, tea or just having dinner together, but they would actually gather at people's homes and educate voters. So they would have the candidates come in, and they still do that today candidates come in for forums and just to talk about their, their platform. Uh, they would have sample ballots so people would know what was on the ballot because we do that today with referendums and we never read what it what it really is until we actually get there right um, so just educating people on that so just giving them some foresight before they go to actually vote giving them who's going on the ballot what would they do for the community as well show them what's important to the, the African community at that time and with these um with these people, um, legislators, people who are running for office, what they could do for the African-American committee and just be very truthful about it as well. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some wins or some major events that mark notable times for the Richmond Crusade for voters?
3: Dr. Ferguson's reads his election win, he was the first African-American in a GA since Reconstruction, and right. that was a huge feat. The first majority African-American city council in 1977. Mm-hmm. That was huge as well. Mm-hmm. And then also um, Doug Wilder's. Inauguration.
0: So we talk about the, a lot of the first of African-Americans here in Central Virginia. We're talking about the win and the power that was brought together with the Richmond Crusades for Voters. And that 1977 city council election is something I always speak about because a lot of folks don't even know that our elections were suspended from 1972 through 77 because of the people were suing the federal government of how they were redrawing the lines and that, right, Sally? Something that we're still talking about today to dilute the black vote, votership mm-hmm. in the South Side. And that was something that the federal government heard. Um, the people felt like they won, and they were able to come back in 1977 here in Richmond and win with the very first majority black city council.
3: Yes, absolutely. They wanted to annex parts of Chesterfield County right, and add 40,000 white voters, which would have totally diluted the African-American vote in the city of Richmond. Exactly. So... This isn't new and 77 was not that long ago. (laughs) So
0: it's important to understand uh, just what our grandparents were living through, our parents were living through and how that impacts us at a larger state throughout the Commonwealth, throughout the nation and how our voices can make it up through this pipeline that many people are losing faith in, unfortunately. And it's the people's votes that need to be heard the most that are losing faith. So, it's platforms like New Virginia Majority that are crucial for this Virginia Commonwealth, that's crucial for the nation to hear what's coming out of Virginia, and that importance of education, of votership, of honestly, just space. And that's something that we talk a lot about here is just creating the space for people to come together, feel comfortable in their own skin, and feel like they are heard, that their heroes are showing up. And back a couple weeks ago on September 14th, New Virginia Majority brought my president, Stacey Abrams, to Northern Virginia to kick off um, a Canvas launch. And If you haven't been following Stacey Abrams recently, you have to realize that she is the most forward-thinking official that we have going on right now. She's thinking about how to save our democracy. She's heard the calls and the ask of many people to run. Even myself, I wanted her to run for president because of that, but she knew better. She knew what the greater good needed, and so she's now put out a major fight for democracy after her inspiring win, I think, in Georgia, Um, even though she might have lost at the poll, she won for democracy and pulling the sheet and the hood back on many of the oppressions that are happening state by state. So I took my little self up there and stood there and heard Stacey Abrams, but it's not just those big names, right, that New Virginia Majority is doing. You all have been on the ground everywhere. I see the orange shirt running around with a clipboard. So thank you so much to Tran Wynn for being here. And i just love for you to add in a little bit more of this conversation about locally and what's important for Virginia to hear and what's important for people to hear about Virginia.
4: Sure. So thank you so much for having me as a, as a guest um, today. So our organization was founded back in 2007. In part because at the time there was this hope and dream that we were going to finally get comprehensive immigration reform in this country. There was bipartisan support. Sensenbrenner, Congressman Sensenbrenner carried the, the legislation at the federal level and millions and millions of people took to the streets mm-hmm. and marched, much like we're seeing today in a lot of instances. And we didn't get it. And part of our analysis as to why, why weren't we getting something that had such wide popular support Mm -hmm. from the general public and support among politicians that, you know, presumably could take the vote. And part of our answer at the time was that it wasn't enough for us to take to the streets. It wasn't enough for us to protest and do direct action, that we also have to exercise our power at the ballot box, much like what the Richmond Crusade for voters discovered back in the day. And so we started out with this intentionality that we needed to engage new Americans, immigrants, who much like myself, who came to this country, who haven't necessarily had the experience of democracy, of voting, of, of participating. That as if we live here and folks are making decisions that impact our lives, it is on us to participate and voice our concerns and exercise that power and you look at Virginia, the demographic changes, right? My, my family immigrated to this country uh, in 1981 as part of the second wave of boat people from, from Vietnam. And I was actually born in a refugee camp, and Virginia was where we ended up settling. And at the time, you know, this was maybe 30-some 30, 30 years ago when I was in first grade. I grew up in the suburbs you know, up in Henrico County. And I remember in first grade, my classmates debating in front of me whether I was black or whether I was white, because in the 80s, only 1% of Virginians was foreign born, Right. right? One in 100. You fast forward to today, and it's one in seven. And so you look at these demographic changes, and it's on us. We have to make sure that Our representative democracy, the folks that we elect at local level, at the state level, and at the federal level, actually reflect the people that live here. Um, And that's what I love about Stacey Abrams, too. You mentioned um, Stacey, is that she didn't shy away from identity politics, right? And that we are actually better if we bring in the identities of the communities that we live in Mm -hmm. and bring those experiences into the rooms where decisions are being made, that we can only make better decisions right, when it comes to that, right? And so so that's the work that we have been doing for the past 12 years. And I think we've been a big part of changing the political landscape throughout the Commonwealth. We do work in Northern Virginia, in the Richmond area, in Hampton Roads. And Virginia today is not where it was in 2008 mm-hmm. or even before that, right? But over the last decade, this shift towards being more progressive mm-hmm. um, was no mistake, it was a lot of infrastructure building. It was a lot of coalition building among organizations across the Commonwealth. And it's it's been great to be a part of that.
0: No, you absolutely have changed the landscape because I know when something comes out, I'm always looking to that platform to say, what are you all saying? You know, what are you all doing? And it, it gives a completely different perspective than norm, what I would normally see on my timeline. Not to mention you actually also create the physical space, which is just as important. I love that you talked about that it wasn't by mistake that this infrastructure was created and the people power are now feeling the impact. Maybe we're not so purple, we might actually be blue. But Sally, I wanted to turn to you and give you an an opportunity to talk about how you even got inspired to become this type of advocate and talk a little bit about ranked choice voting as well.
1: Sure. So I'm an economist by trade. I'm an economics professor at UVA Mm -hmm. and I was somebody who got into this work because I cared about economic justice. I cared about workers and wages and, and small businesses. But like a lot of people had to understand post-2016 that there was a better use of my time. Mm. That particularly as someone who's a nerdy number cruncher, I just could not rally the energy every day to be cranking out more research in a world where we couldn't agree how many bodies were showing up for an inauguration ceremony. It just did, <laughs> it did not seem like a time where that kind of careful math was worth it. And so i think like a lot of people came up for air and said where can i be most useful mm-hmm. and also like a lot of folks decided that election reform was where i was going to put my work because it the brokenness in our elections and our democracy is what was holding back progress on so many other things mm-hmm. and i felt like that was a place that i could be really useful because as a, a teacher of kind of nerdy wonky complex opaque stuff i think that I have something to offer in terms of helping people get their head around things that can feel opaque but are actually really important. So right. I felt like that was a, a natural pivot for me to say I'm used to talking to people about statistics and all of those nitty gritty details. But you know now let's nerd out a little bit on the nuts and bolts of elections mm-hmm. and help people understand about how the way we design our voting systems really dictates the outcomes we get.
0: Right. No, I love all of this. Let's please nerd out on some justice. And I love that you took your talents and was like, how can I contribute that to the greater good? And that's what so many people, specifically white people, ask me how they can do and contribute the work, right? Is And that's what I say, what can you do? What can you give? So you mentioned in your intro a little bit about gerrymandering and what Virginia is going through, a lawsuit. Can you give people a quick background? Because that's something, too, that folks don't really know has happened and what's going on.
1: Sure. So I think one of the most important things that we need to remember about elections in Virginia is that most people don't vote. Mm. Even in a really heated governor's race, we might get 40% of people to turn out in these super pivotal statewide elections now where every single member of our House and Senate is on the ballot, we'll be lucky to hit 30% turnout. And there's sort of two reasons for that. Part of it is active voter suppression. You know, folks who have been removed from the rolls, or you know, given um, misinformation about where and how they vote, and then part of it is people responding pretty rationally and feeling like their vote doesn't matter. Mm. And there are pieces of the way our elections are designed to diffuse the value of a vote, and one of the most important ones is gerrymandering. So gerrymandering is the practice of drawing the lines. For, that, that define the districts for elected office in a way to systematically advantage one person or party. So if you look at a map of the House and Senate districts in Virginia, it's full of all sorts of crazy shapes and octopi and alligators um, that stretch in and around, um, designed to carve us up. Mostly they're designed to be confusing because the more that people feel like they're part of a coherent district that represents a community, the more they can rally that collective voice the more we chop them up into little bits and pieces, the more they don't even know who's in their district and how they could could bring that power together. I've, I've become especially cognizant of that now as someone who's running for office. I am fortunate to be running in one of the few coherent districts in Virginia. Mm-hmm. where the city of Charlottesville and a good part of the urban ring around us. So everybody in my district knows that they're neighbors. You know, they think of themselves as part of a community. So they're really good at bringing their voice together. They know how to get in my ear. But if you look at a lot of these suburban districts, you know, in and around Richmond and Henrico, you've got people who don't even think of themselves as as part of the same people. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of a divide and conquer strategy. Um, It's also meant to chop up minority groups um, both political minorities here in Virginia like Democrats and racial minorities like black folks into the smallest most compact places so they have as few representatives as possible and then advantage the party in the majority right now that's Republicans so that they can get as many votes as possible so you have if you look at statewide elections in the last decade where we had Democrats in every statewide office like the U.S. Senate and the governor's mansion but we had 70 percent of the seats in the General Assembly were going to Republicans, that was gerrymandering in action. They had drawn the maps to systematically advantage that party.
0: So what's happening with Virginia in a courtroom right now is, is it
1: Yeah, so we had a really special shift in Virginia that we had to redraw our maps Mm -hmm. um, because the courts came back and said, yeah, those were gerrymandered. They were racially gerrymandered. They were intentionally drawn to pack black voters into as few districts as possible.
0: And I'm going to jump in really quickly right now because that takes us right back to 1971 and the federal complaint that the maps back then here in the city of Richmond were also being drawn to racially dilute black voters. So again same tools New time. Keep
1: right. Running. And you get back you get back to what Triam was talking about, which is that if you if you pack those black voters into as few districts as possible so that you've got 80, 90 percent of people in that space, and then you recognize that over time our, our electorate has become a lot more diverse, when you unpack those districts, you realize that we have a lot more districts that are really 50-50 toss-ups, mm. where you start letting some of those black voters out of the all-black districts and into a district with the Chesterfield suburbs, mm-hmm. then you've got races like Sheila Bynum-Coleman who is a black woman running against Kirk Cox, who's a white man and the Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. And that is now a district that is very competitive, and she is in a strong position to unseat the Speaker of the House thanks to this redraw, which has made that, that district more diverse.
0: Right, and that would be quite a shift in leadership.
4: Can I add something on the redistricting and and, and this that. election? I will say that this coming election on November 5th is a generational election. Mm. I know it's sleepy and folks are focused on the presidential because there's so much news and coverage especially in national media about, you know, the Democratic primary. But for Virginians, this November is a generational election. This right. is the most important election that we have in recent history and it's more important than than the presidential, dare I say right. at this point in time, right? And I say that because the General Assembly that gets elected in November, will be in the driver's seat when it comes to the new electoral maps. And whether it's Republicans or Democrats, whether there's a commission that does it, I mean, the criteria that we look at in terms of how these maps are drawn, that is still being debated and is on the table. But how these electoral maps are drawn will determine the power of our vote and the power of the people. And at a time when the Voting Rights Act has been gutted particularly by the the Shelby V. Holder case, where we don't have to go through pre-clearance anymore. So we don't have sort of somebody over you know looking over our shoulder to make sure that you know we, we're doing something right or good. There's so much at stake. And so it's not just about who can you know who's going to be in the General Assembly over the next two years. It's it's a generational election where these maps will be in place from 2021 to 2031, Mm. think about Mm. all of the policies that can be passed in a decade. And when we think about race equity and dismantling systems of oppression and actually getting to a place where we are allowing our black and brown communities to thrive, there's so much harm that can be done in 10 years, Right. but there's also some good we're not gonna fix it in 10 years, but we can lay the foundation for more change to come. So if I have any plug for the listeners on this, on this <laughs> show today, it's we are, we are going into a generational election and it's so important that we all go out and vote. It might not feel it mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now, it might not feel urgent right now, right. but I can't emphasize enough how urgent it actually is.
0: How are you all getting that message of urgency out while managing people's lack of attention?
4: The best ways that we've been able, when it comes to engaging people, trust and relationships really matter. And so our attention and our folks has been building that face-to-face connection with people, being in community, and having real hard conversations about what's at stake, Mm. right? And when you build that, it's very similar to what the Richmond Crusade for Voters did, right? When they decided to do the voter education piece, it was having conversations in homes, having conversations in community, having that direct interaction, because then that motivates people to then go talk to their own folks, their own networks, and then you start building momentum. It's, building a movement is very different than just building a turnout machine, right? right? Where people just show up, they vote, and then they go on with their lives. What I think many organizations that do work in communities of color and disenfranchised communities is that our emphasis is on the long game and doing that movement building, And so success might not come right away, but we we see it at the, you know, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so that's what we're moving towards.
1: One thing that I think really motivates a lot of folks who might otherwise tune this out is when they understand just how close it will be. Because if we look back at the last elections, we had seats decided by literally luck of the draw because the vote totals were exactly the same. Y'all, we literally
0: pulled a vote from a bowl. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget. It wasn't too long ago. Lots happened since then, but let's take it back. That was a real thing that happened in Virginia.
1: Yeah, that's Virginia. And so nobody can say that their vote doesn't matter because you could be that vote. And it wasn't just Shelley Simon's race. It was Josh Cole. Yep. I think Josh lost his race by less than 70 votes. I think, did Larry Barnett lose his race by less than 200 votes? So these are so close. It's literally like you and your buddies. And I felt that as a candidate during the primary this spring Mm -hmm. when I had a good friend who also teaches at UVA uh, roll up to the polls at about 5 p.m. when I was standing out front. And I would say, oh, great. So good to see you. Like, make sure you text your friends so you get them to come to the polls. And he was like, no, I'm that friend who got got. Like, I was the person whose friend texted me 30 minutes ago, and I just remembered to vote. And this is somebody who I think of as a buddy. And so if you are in a position to literally go through your phone contacts on election day and send those 40 text messages, you are having an impact in races that are this close. Wow. Wow. I want to ask
2: you all, especially for you two, Dr. Matthews and Trim, how are you engaging people who aren't listening to this show, who aren't going to the party meetings, you know, who just really don't want to deal with politics at all and don't want to hear it, don't listen to this anything because they just feel like it really doesn't matter?
3: I actually bring it back home. And I think that's the most important, like you said, relationships with people. So you start off with family and friends who are close with you and you, You connect it to their life, because I think that's one of the issues. It's like people, they go to their homes and that's it. Anything outside of that may not matter to them that they know of right now, but in the future it may. I think just starting at home, disseminating the information, talking to them about it as well, because we get so trapped in our our daily lives. We get up, we go to work, we take our kids, we come back home, we go to bed, the same cycle. But I think if we go closer and, and deeper into it, if this happens, then this may happen. So if someone gets elected and, and the redistricting may not be in your favor, so your kids don't go to this school anymore, they go to this school. Mm-hmm. Or funding mm. for schools as well. So I think we need to just bring it back home and start with our homes. Start with our current homes and then our families and our friends. And and it just reach out in that form because we just we get so trapped in our daily lives that it doesn't seem like it matters and it's just another commercial on television and mm. it comes and goes and it's just interrupting our day but we need to realize that this has an impact so I would say start at home first and educate yourself as well um, and it's so it's it's easy to educate yourself and it, it really it really is it, it, we just have to put the effort in to do it
2: Right, so that you can present those facts to whoever you're talking with. Yes, and
3: make it personal as well. I think that is the key. You have to make this information personal. What will happen to you? Because we think about it, the GA um, at the top of the year uh, makes all these decisions and rules and laws and everything, and it doesn't impact us until July Mm. when things change. And then you make it, you're breaking a law that you didn't know existed but we weren't paying attention.
4: Mm. Yeah, I would say I agree, right? It happens in those direct interactions and it Uh, with people that you know and trust. I think part of it, too, is just having the conversation with people. When we go, the first time I went door knocking for elections work back in 2008, we were knocking on doors of folks who would say, no one's ever come talk to me ever before. Right. No one's ever said that my vote counted or that it mattered because we're talking to folks who have ne- have traditionally been left on the sidelines, who aren't being targeted by campaigns or who aren't being targeted by either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And so creating a new political home for folks where their voices will actually be heard and seen, um, I think, has been one of the best things that we have been able to do over the years I look at the work that we do with um, returning citizens, folks who have been re-enfranchised. Um, we have a long way to go. Who, finally, you know, have this opportunity to engage in a political process that has intentionally left them behind for generations, right? Mm-hmm. And so, providing safe spaces and political homes for people to have conversations about what really matters to them and then trying to elevate those issues into the mainstream and making candidates respond to those issues and showing that we can make a difference. like If we actually band together and assert ourselves, that we can actually start to really shape policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's been impactful. Um, you know, some of our biggest victories. I mean, when Governor McAuliffe stood on that, those capital steps in 2016 and signed that executive order to reinstate and restore the voting rights of over two hundred thousand Virginians. And granted there was a rocky road after that. <laughs> but but he did that. Right. And that was a culmination of nine years. Mm. Nine years of hard work. Um, nine years of talking to people and making sure that Governor McAuliffe, Governor McDonnell before him, and Governor Kane before him understood that voting matters and our voices matter, right? But when that happened, oh my God, the difference it made, right? right? The folks that registered to vote who had their rights restored in that 2016 election turned out at 79%, higher than any other demographic or any other constituent group in Virginia, had the highest turnout. So I, I reject the notion that people don't care about elections. It's that they've never been given a political home and they've never been told by some of the mainstream folks that they mattered. Right. So I think that's the work that, that we have in front of us and, and make sure that we continue to drive that home. It, and
0: again, why we talk so much about space and I love that you call it a political home because even when people become and tap into that curiosity, a lot of times, it's a heavy response, especially in certain primaries and like where your vote should go or you're going to split the vote or, you know, how could you vote that way? And so if people that come in and are looking around for their people like a home a lot of times get pushed right back out by just some of the urgency they're feeling from other voters. Right. I'll put it that way, that we're all feeling a sense of urgency and we're still learning how to communicate with each other and these different homes and spaces. So I wanted to really talk a little bit about this ranked choice voting idea that um, I've been seeing on the Twitter sphere and seeing around in different localities across the United States that says, hey, this could actually be a way to hear more about marginalized communities, as well as what would the critics say about this?
1: Yeah, so ranked choice voting is a small change to ballots that can make a really big difference for democracy. In a ranked choice election, you don't just vote for one candidate. You get to rank the candidates from most to least favorite. So you got a first choice, a second choice, a third choice. It's like saying this person's my favorite and here's my backup. And that's really powerful in elections where more than two candidates run. Because right now we have a problem with our elections that when you've got a lot of people running, someone can get the most votes and still fall far short of majority support. Mm -hmm. So if you think back to the 2016 primaries when Donald Trump was picking up steam, he was winning those early elections with 25, 30% of the vote. But there were so many people running that that was the top vote getter. And that allowed him to rally what was actually a vocal minority and pull it into the current political uh, dominance that they have now. As Democrats, we're now facing that on the same side with our presidential primary. You know, we have more than a dozen candidates running and no way with our current ballots to express the genuine diversity of viewpoints that we have about that. Mm. Ranking candidates, I think, is very natural to people. You naturally have a first choice and then some other people that are in the mix and some people who are really down low uh, on your list. And so a ranked choice ballot is just a natural way of letting you actually express that. You know, right now, we don't have any way of writing never Trump on a ballot. (laughs) A ranked choice ballot lets you do that. So here's how it actually works when it comes time to count the votes. In a ranked choice election, you count up all the first choice votes. And if somebody has a pure majority in the first round, that's it. It's over just like any other election. The second choices only come into play if the top vote, vote getter doesn't actually get a majority. So think back to the presidential election in 2016, where we had Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and then a couple third party candidates. There were a lot of pivotal states like Michigan and like Pennsylvania, where Donald Trump got the most votes, but he didn't get more than half the votes. There were third party candidates winning two, three, four percent of the votes, and that turned out to be pivotal. In a ranked choice election, those voters who supported the third party candidates would have their vote transferred to their second choice automatically so that there's a final head to head between the top two vote getters. It's just like a runoff election where you drag everybody back to the polls and you make them vote again. It just happens instantly because now we have machines that can do that. That's why you'll often hear ranked choice voting called an instant runoff. Mm. It just does that process where we narrow down the candidates one at a time but the machine does it for us. It's like, we have the technology, we can build a better vote. Mm -hmm. Um, We just need to take advantage of it. And lots of communities are. So all across the country, we've seen particularly progressive cities embrace this reform. Places like Minneapolis and St. Paul and Minnesota, San Francisco, Oakland and Berkeley, Santa Fe, uh, Memphis just became the first big southern city to adopt ranked choice. Mm -hmm. Um, But the biggest step forward in this movement has been Maine, which had used ranked choice voting to elect the mayor of Portland for many, many years, but has now taken ranked choice statewide wide. So in 2018, they used ranked choice voting to elect their senators and congresspersons. Mm -hmm. And now in 2020, they're going to use it for the president too.
0: So what would somebody that is not for ranked choice voting say about this process?
1: They say it's confusing and voters won't get it. Mm-hmm. And that comes from a good place because voters need to understand how the ballot works or they're effectively disenfranchised. Right. Um, my fear is that it often comes from a disingenuous place. Mm-hmm. Um, so you I've gotten to know real well the executive director of Fair Vote Minnesota. That's the Minnesota chapter. And they've been at this for a while because the Twin Cities have been using this for for more than a decade. And she will say that this this criticism often comes from like the well-meaning white people crowd Mm -hmm. who says like, I'm just concerned that urban voters won't get it. Mm -hmm. And then she'll say, actually, St. Paul elected their first black mayor thanks to ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. That Oakland and San Francisco have dramatically diversified their city councils because of ranked choice. And it's because it's allowed for a more diverse representation on the ballot. Because the problem right now is that without rank choice when you have more than two candidates run there's pressure for somebody to get out of the race right. so that they don't play spoiler right in a ranked choice election, that pressure disappears. Nobody has to worry about splitting the vote. If it turns out that you're the third place vote getter, people still get to say how they feel about the top two. So that pressure to say, hey, get out of the race, you're going to spoil the vote, it disappears. Right. And that's been really powerful, particularly in minority communities, because it means that more than two candidates can run mm-hmm. who share the same demographics. We can have more than two people,
0: black people on the ballot. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a kind of amazing thing. And that was my curiosity of this. I guess my other concern of it is because you even said something like we have the technology for this and it just worries me that the technology piece of that is something that could be manipulated just as our the electronic ballots are now right so how does that technology also ensure that someone can't just hack in and mess up everything from the ranked choice voting
1: so all the problems that we have from electronic voter technology from ranked choice are mm-hmm. the same as the ones that we have for traditional ballots. And all the solutions are the same, too. So you can still have paper ballots that print out. So we have that paper trail. Okay. This is not a problem that's in any way unique to rank choice. Gotcha. OK.
2: And then uh, one other concern that I've read about is that it pulls the vote more towards the center.
1: So that hasn't been what we've seen in practice in the places where we've actually seen candidates run because it it doesn't just change how you count the ballots, it ends up changing who runs and who votes. Mm. And that's really what moves the needle on the political debate is that you have people who would have stayed out of the election entirely, who now throw their hat in the ring. And that has this virtuous feedback cycle where suddenly the voters see more people on the ballot who looks like them and they engage. And they say, now we have a more diverse candidate pool. Now I care. I see somebody like me out there. And so what happens is that over time the debate gets more substantive because ranked choice voting really punishes that with us or against us kind of politics if you talk to candidates who have run in a ranked choice election they'll report that you had to do genuine coalition building in your community because you're not just playing for the first choice votes you're playing for the second choice votes of your opponent's supporters and so in practice where we right now have an electorate where only 40 percent of the people feel engaged Pulling towards the majority or towards the center actually means engaging a lot of people who've been out of the process entirely. So it's not moving towards some kind of mushy, vanilla middle Mm -hmm. of our traditional political spectrum. It's moving toward the middle of reality, which is lots of people are left out. Wow, wow. Do you think
2: it's safe to say that if it does pull toward the center, it's because that's what's more reflective of the voters?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a ranked choice election, you're going to learn how the people really feel. Right now, I would argue that our current system pulls us toward an imaginary middle that is actually the middle of nowhere. It's it's the middle of where you know the current seats of power sit. So when a ranked choice election, when you engage more of the electorate, you pull towards the middle of, of reality, which is where people actually are.
0: I love that our entire panel today is made up of folks that identify as women. So I'm gonna go around and ask each one of you to identify some of the most important issues that you've heard either in your work or that are impersonal to you and your family at your kitchen tables that you've been having conversation at that we should all think about and remember why it's important for us to vote
3: for me it's education education okay it's pretty <laughs> you done. Can tell Boom. education and having um, what is it universal pre-k that has to happen okay it gives everyone the, the same on the same footing um, I really have no idea why it hasn't passed it's it's not I don't think that's that huge of a deal every it's not k through 12 it's pk through 12 okay Mm. there we go boom simple Uh, it's pretty simple i feel like it's simple and it's been in the ga before and it just never makes and i really don't understand why Mm. but i think there's you have to put the foundation there for for all kids and they all deserve it and they all need it right not just the ones who can afford it not just the ones who got in line first Mm -hmm. but all children Mm
0: -hmm. that's so important my daughter's in kindergarten this year and as well as just having access to the type of education that they need entering kindergarten that universal pre-K is crucial. Yes. Who wants to go next on the important issues?
4: It's hard for me to choose one because mm. we work with such a diverse community. Yep. Right. So anything from criminal justice reform to economic justice to environmental justice. I mean, we we do everything. So I would say the one opportunity that I think is is on the horizon, is to actually have a democracy agenda. Mm. And going back to what Stacey Abrams is trying to do across the country, I feel like without our access to the ballot and without a equal voice, all of the other things that we care about, it's almost nearly impossible to get done because – If it didn't matter so much, if our vote didn't matter so much, they wouldn't make it so hard for us to exercise it. Right. And so what I look forward to and our number one priority is actually to to pass a a policy agenda that is pro-democracy, that expands and protects voting rights and uh, make sure that everybody can have a have a voice. Awesome.
1: That's spot on. I mean, if Democrats take back the House and Senate here in Virginia, I would love to see us follow the lead of Democrats in Congress and make our first bill a democracy reform agenda. I mean, Virginia needs its own modern Voting Rights Act that pulls all this stuff Mm -hmm. under one umbrella Mm -hmm. and pitches it. I think that really resonates with me in the community that I come from in Charlottesville. Um, I think in a special way, I think that our community has become especially cognizant of what happens when other people get to tell your story. Mm. You know, we're a community that has landed in national headlines, and there's a whole lot of people who want to interpret for us what happened and what it all means. And so that has really hit home just how much representation matters, mm-hmm. that it is not about electing some emissary who's going to go off and handle your business for you. It is about getting people at the table so yep. they can take charge of their of their own autonomy and the policies that impact their lives. And so the democracy reform is the the big structural thing that has to happen, but it's about getting people's voices to the table.
0: All right, thank you all so much for that. We're gonna jump in to our favorite segment, which is... What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment of the show where we invite all of our guests to identify one piece of their privilege and how they use it to bust the myth of white supremacy. So I can't wait to hear, what's your privilege? Who wants to go first?
1: I can go. Okay. Um. All of us have privilege in lots of different ways, but there is one that is weighing really heavily on my Mm mind right now. My family owns a farm in Illinois. Uh, My mother grew up on that farm and she died suddenly Mm -hmm. a year ago. And so my brother and I discovered that she had written her will to pass the farm directly to us. This isn't something that we were expecting. But now my brother and I have 160 some odd acres of farmland in Illinois that we have tons of emotional attachment to. I mean, we spent our childhood um, with our family on that farm, but it has been a lesson for me in watching how whiteness works, because that farm isn't just an emotional asset. It's a financial asset. Not everybody, when they lose a parent, suddenly has this financial asset dropped on your ledger and I have come to recognize what a safety net that is. Mm. Um, I, you know, you losing a parent rocks your life in a thousand and one ways, but it also, one of the small ways was for me to to come to understand that I had that safety net there and that the, the privilege that comes with generational wealth mm. uh, allows you to take risks.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, you definitely got more than 40 acres and a mule there. Yeah, right? and,
1: <laughs> and I'm certain. I'm certain that I don't know, and this is something I'm starting to dig into the history of it. So how did my grandfather get this land? But right. I have no doubt that you know, at the time that it happened, that they were policies that were not widely available to all people. Actually, there's a woman in Charlottesville who heads up our Food Justice Network, and she's doing a lot of work about how white families can transfer land black to, back to black farmers. Mm-hmm. The um, reparations project, yeah. I, exactly, and so that's something that I'm really excited to dig in on to understand. So how is it, did, did my family come by this land, and how could we think about about you know bringing it back into the pool that should be more fairly allocated to all people.
0: Yep. There is a national reparations network happening where there are white folks giving away acres of land to a trust uh, for black folks to farm, own, and create. My, Dr.
3: Matthews? My privilege is my education, plain and simple. Um, I'm not first-generation college students, which gave me a leg up as well. I had people I can go to to talk about my ins and outs of education, my ups and downs of education. I can tell you I receive... Uh, quick responses for people if I put comma PhD behind my name versus mm. just having Kimberly Matthews there. I know. I noticed I kept calling you Dr. Matthews and you're a doctor too. I didn't even note it that, like that. It's
1: it's a privilege that it's less of a cost for me to pay to drop it. Right. So anyway, okay. go ahead. Absolutely.
3: And I think I, I take my role very seriously. I know I've been invited to boards and committees um, at VCU and beyond because I have my PhD. Um, that wouldn't have been afforded to me if I didn't have it. But secondly, I know and I take very seriously the fact that some of my students, I will be their only African-American faculty member ever in their college career. Mm. Um, And that's amazing to me in 2019, but it still happens. Right. And I take that very seriously with my work, with my communication with my students, with my relationship with my students. I want them to be able to see themselves um, as a college professor or just graduate school or or just achieving something where they don't really see themselves Mm -hmm. very much and i just take that very seriously and i know that that is definitely a privilege my education
0: definitely just showing up with that natural hair or something absolutely your hair looks just like my daughter's and i know for a fact right now she's not seeing that at her school but uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) thanks so much
4: thank you it's a good question i i think my privilege is um you know, my life experiences and, and my family's life experiences and, and, frankly, our community's life experiences. The work that we do and the work that I've dedicated my heart and soul into doing is lifting those experiences and helping people tell their stories so that we can affect change. And so just being able to, to be rooted in those personal stories and in those life experiences and have that drive the change that we're trying to, to make I think is really real. You can do a lot of policy change, but if the impact, and the outcomes of that policy aren't actually fixing people's lives, then that policy was actually not a good policy, right? And the only way that you know that it will actually fix people's lives is if you, you understand what they're going through and you understand those experiences. And so I, I feel very honored and privileged to be in the space that I am and to be able to, to hear and, and experience and see those things firsthand.
0: We learn a lot from Brian Stevenson that talks about the steps of justice is that proximity, right? And that's what Trium is really talking about is that she has the privilege of her proximity to people. And my privilege is that I have always had access to voting. My family is one of the ones that was impacted by the 2016 signature that Terry McAuliffe did. And we took my father to go vote for the very first time in 2016. We have pictures, my daughter was with them. It's like a moment, but I've had the privilege to have always done that from the moment I turned 18 and knew how the importance of it and the privilege of somebody sitting me down, Um, not just somebody, but the president of the Virginia NAACP from a very young age King Califondi and, and tell me about my history and the importance of this. So my privilege is being able to share my experience and the importance of voting with my greater community right here on this mic and share it and learn more from amazing people like our guest today. So how can everybody follow up with the great work that you all are doing? What do you have coming up?
4: Well, from here until November 5th, we are canvassing every day. In communities across the commonwealth talking to voters about what's at stake and that they should vote Mm -hmm. so whether you want to help us register voters or to have these direct face-to-face conversations with people Mm -hmm. we've got some time for you
3: look at that space being created all right dr matthews anything you want to say Uh, well i'm working on my next book actually and it's a pictorial history of the richmond 34 Oh, that's great! Richmond 34. I'm working with Dr. Raymond Hilton from BUU, and we're um, compiling a pictorial history, and hopefully that will be out by the 60th anniversary, which will be in February.
0: Oh, that's so good! That's so good! And tell people your book, your other book, your first.
3: Oh, my current book is "The Images of Modern America: The Richmond Crusade for Voters." It's
0: a great one. So, another way to get involved is to read up on our history.
1: So the most important thing is that you vote on November 5th, but after that, we need you to stay engaged. We need you to keep your eyes on Richmond during the General Assembly session in January and February, because so many pro-democracy initiatives are going to be debated. And when voters stay tuned, then your elected officials know that that matters to you.
0: Boom. Well, thank you all so much for being here. And I look forward to seeing y'all out in these streets with the clipboard. I look forward to seeing everybody at the polls and y'all come on back.
4: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Let me help you in here. Until women can get equal pay.
0: So first of all let me say that i feel like sally and i have a personal relationship now and that is the reason i was not addressing that very accomplished woman as dr hudson just to make sure i put that out there to lift women because she's got a whole mit degree y'all i mean she's pretty accomplished out here knowing she's doing so no disrespect by any means to her with that but what an amazing conversation of strong women in leadership and what i really heard from them is something that we talk about a lot is intersecting these narratives and efforts to really amplify the voices of marginalized communities, black and brown communities. We have folks that are working to register people to vote that are educating people about voting as well as folks that are working to reform democracy and actually get us to the point where democracy is representing the people that we want to speak for us. So it's not just, let's just register to vote. It's not like, oh, we can only focus on democracy reform. We have to do both right now because as Tram put it, so delicately to us, the urgency of what's happening right now this year and how that will impact us for the next 10 years and, and the issues that come out of our local districts here in the Commonwealth. And reminding everybody that October 15th is the last day to register to vote here in Virginia. And, you know, as we talk about different options and things like ranked choice voting, let's think about how that would play out in something like our fifth district special election, right? Where there are eight candidates. Ooh, interesting. Right? So that's really what got us on this topic for this week, because we have it happening right now. And how would you feel if you knew your vote was being ranked? if you could safely put your first vote out there without being like oh they're not going to win anyway and that same narrative that we've been falling victim to for so long but that's what we're going to keep doing right here at race Capital: is asking the questions inviting the people on to come up with the ideas and tell their stories and we hope to catch you next week right here on race Capital.
1: i'm from the